Weird Realities explores the paranormal, preternatural, and supernatural worlds that surround us. Here we delve into those topics that challenge us to think outside the limitations of realism, where we test the boundaries of imagination and are forced to think outside the confines and restrictions of what is normal. We are the creators, the writers, the artists, and the insane. Welcome to our Weird Realities. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the latest Weird Ink session. I'm Hadley Thorne and joining me today are my co-host, horror writer and retired CIA man, Mr. Scott Baker and voice actress, Finley Jones. Now, I'm not even gonna lie, I have really been looking forward to today's conversation with the man who I consider the 40th Indiana Jones, Mr. Micah Hanks. So for those of you who are not familiar with him, Micah is a writer, podcaster, and researcher whose interests cover a variety of subjects. He's into history, science, philosophy. He does current events, cultural studies. He's all about the technology, um, unexplained phenomena, and ways the future of mankind can be influenced by science. In addition to writing, Micah hosts the Micah Hanks program, the popular current events podcast, Middle Theory, and is co-host of the Seven Ages Audio Journal, a podcast that's devoted to the study of archaeology and ancient history. On top of that, he is an amazing musician and narrator who has lended his voice to several audiobooks, including Dan and Teresa Dukes, who I interviewed last week. So, hey, Micah, how are you doing today? I am wonderful, and it is great to be here indeed. I, I think we've been overdue, and of course, uh, I'm looking forward to a great conversation tonight. So thanks for having me. Oh, well, I'm super excited. Um, I actually met Micah when he appeared on Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio with Lauren Smith, our producer. So I'm listening to him talk. I knew that he needed to come on our show because we had so much more to talk about. So I don't know where you want to get started. Um, I did find a quote that I, I listened to something you were on and it just really struck me. Mm-hmm. You had said that when you were a child that you, your parents had books on all kinds of interesting stuff and they kept it up top of the bookshelf and you had said that things just out of reach where all of the knowledge of the world may be captured mm-hmm. and I love that. <laughs> yeah. And it is true. There, there were all these books on the top shelf. You see, my, my father especially is quite a bibliophile. And as a child growing up, I was always, I, I think it would be fair to say, if you'll allow me to be grandiloquent, uh, it, I was enamored with all the books that were kept in the library up there. And, you know, in particular, there were history and anthropology textbooks from my dad's days back in college. And then my mom had some wonderful romance novels and also books on, I mean, everything from ethnobotany to magic to, you know, history. Both of my parents are incredibly well-read, you know, in a range of different areas. But yeah, there were, there were other books too that I really started getting interested in. And uh, again, it really all started kind of in stories around the campfire, right? Um, mom especially would tell stories around the campfire. Her favorite thing to do on Friday nights when we were kids was build a big bonfire out in the backyard. And again, having grown up in the wilderness outside of Asheville, North Carolina, um, right next, I mean, literally on the border of the Pisgah National Forest. And I could tell you a strange 
uh, experience. We could we can go in a lot of different directions with this, but uh, I can certainly tell you a little about some of the interesting things about uh, this part of the world where I live here in Western North Carolina. But indeed, we would sit out there uh, in this majestic wilderness, very close to what's known as Bent Creek uh, outside of Asheville. And mom would build these bonfires and tell stories all night. And so, you know, naturally, I began to ask questions about these stories. These stories, of course, would talk about strange lights seen in the sky, man-like beasts that would be seen stalking the remote wilds of North America and what have you, you know, ghosts, all kinds of things, folklore, things that interested her. And uh, when, I, <clears throat> when I asked for books on these subjects, that's really when I think that the, the hook was set, so to speak, because my father gave me I think initially there were about three books. I still have those books, but one of them was destroyed and I had to get a new copy of it. But I'll tell you what those books were. They were a book called The Search for Bigfoot, Man, Myth, or Monster by Peter Byrne. And Peter, of course, is a Irish-born, now live, he, he actually is in his mid-90s, still lives there in the Dalles in Oregon. But Peter, I think going back to about 1948, right after the Second World War, found a weird human-like footprint in the Himalayas. And of course, this reputedly associated with the famous Yeti or abominable snowman, as it's also colloquially known, actually known all around the world by that name. And um, and he came back to the United, well, actually came for the first time to the United States after having searched for the Yeti there in the Himalayas for a while. He comes to the United States in the 19. 60s, and at the behest of, of course, a, a wealthy philanthropist by the name of Tom Slick. And he begins aiding with, at, at that time, uh, existing North American research effort to try and find Bigfoot. And this following shortly after the 1958 announcement in newspapers all throughout America of the discovery of these large footprints out there at Bluff Creek, California. Now, we'll talk more about that later because that turned out to be a hoax, but it's what brought Peter Byrne to North America, and he he basically got here and he stayed. And in the 1970s, he wrote a book recounting his involvement in the search effort in the Pacific Northwest for this creature known in America as Bigfoot. I prefer the term Sasquatch or any number of other indigenous American names that are applied to the creature. But again, that book, when I was a child, I was about five years old when I first saw it. And again, if anyone's ever seen this, the paperback, uh, the paperback copy of the search for Bigfoot. It actually has a bit of a haunting kind of a, a appeal to it because, you know, there's this shadowy, large, hulking figure that's slightly out of focus off in the distance through the trees. And that really is sort of, I think, how Sasquatch remains as far as the way people envision it really throughout our culture, even still, this shadowy, human-like figure somewhere off in the distance that we can't quite even seem to fully conceptualize and that we still have all these questions about. That really, I think, set the anchor, so to speak, you know, for me early on. But the other two books I have to also mention, uh, Ivan T. Sanderson, Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life. I'll mention that book to people today and they're like, well, you know, I'm more into the American Sasquatch thing. I don't really follow the Yeti thing. And I'm like, look, you need to read that book. It's not <laughs> about the Abominable Snowman. At the time that Sanderson wrote it, he was using, yet again, the popular terminology. And although that book was published in 1961, just a few years after the Bigfoot thing begins in North America, uh, and again, Bigfoot, that name, much like Flying Saucer, was kind of a creation of the media. Uh, Sanderson was really 
bent on calling these things abominable snowmen of the Americas. That's the term that he preferred. And so that's why the book's called that. And then the other book was a book that's less well known, but you can still find it today. It was by a gentleman named Peter Costello, and it was titled In Search of Lake Monsters. And so, and he looked all around the world. I mean, starting at Loch Ness and going all around the world to Ogopogo in Canada and other reputed uh, or reported, I should say, uh, <clears throat> instances of large animals that are seen in bodies of water around the world, and also a small appendix in the back of the book about uh, sea monsters as well. Um, so anyway, it, that really, for me at an early age, kind of set the tone. You mentioned in Indiana Jones in the outset, uh, in the, uh, the wonderful introduction you gave there, Hadley. And I'll, and I'll just say that again, you, you, you add to the fact that those were the books my parents gave me with this wonderful, and I really mean that sincerely, a wonderful mindset that I hope all parents out there will, will take. When your kids ask for books, within reason, <laughs> give them what they want. Because the long-term effect was I have had my nose in a book, in fact, in those books ever since. And I think it was a wonderful opportunity for me at an early age, rather than playing video games, my parents had me outdoors learning all the wildflowers, learning all the different names of the trees, all the different animal species, learning how to track animals and recognize them by their spore that they leave, you know, impressions in the ground and what have you. And of course, then they also stoked the fire under the imagination by giving me books that made me think, and there may be other things, other animals out there as yet unknown to science. And for me, I mean, the quest began right there. But then my earliest film going experience, I'll just, again, I don't want to go too deep here, but they took me to see Peter Pan and I was like, eh. And they're like, okay, so he has more mature tastes. <laughs> they leave me at grandma and granddad's when they go to see, uh, the Return of the Jedi. And I've almost forgiven him for that. Now. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I've almost forgiven him for that. But I mean, after that, I said, I want to go see those kinds of films, mom and dad. And so they said, okay. So when Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, when that was in theaters, they said, okay, well, this is the kind of film you said you wanted to go see. So we'll let you come see this one. At the scene toward the end where where, you know, they're, they're, they're in there in the, in, the, in the temple where the Templar is, you know, and he's been guarding the grail. You know, uh, my mom was still like, she had her hand over my eyes when the guy's getting turned into a skeleton and everything for choosing unwisely. Uh, but not to give it away, no, no spoilers here, right? But, <laughs> but all that said, I mean, again, those, those early experiences, the, my advice to parents is never assume that your child isn't paying attention to the things that you are exposing them to at an early age. And those things will often become formative for them. Uh, yes. Watching Indiana Jones and, and the last crusade in theaters made me go, wow, I want to carry a whip and wear a hat. <laughs> and, and, and those books, those books certainly put me on a course and I've remained on that ever since. And I'm, you know, I extend that to a lot of other subjects too. And again, a little later, I'll also add that they gave me a book called UFOs Interplanetary Visitors by Ray Fowler. Um, I, I'm probably am best known in truth for my work with UFOs uh, these days. Uh, and although that hadn't been as interesting to me at an early age, I think with all that's been happening in that regard in recent days, it's easy to see why so many people have really kind of become wrapped up in that. And again, I think these are all valid questions about our reality that extend the scope of what we think we know as humans, and really they challenge us. They present us scientific challenges, philosophical questions. They present a number of challenges that cause us to have to really think about our place here in reality. So that in a nutshell is who I am and where I'm from. <laughs> 
Wow. Well, I did have it on my list of things to ask you about, which I know I'm not even going to get probably three things done. But um, with all of the government, I, I hate to say confession because they haven't really confessed, but the, the fact that they're now admitting that, um, you know, unidentified aerial phenomena is real. Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious, because I know you have been studying this, like the majority of your research years. I really wanted to know what you thought about the recent, I guess, plethora of stuff that's come out and not sure. really come out because, I mean, it's there's stuff, but there's there's still a lot of secrecy, it seems. Right. So the most significant thing I think that we've seen in recent days has been a rather short, about a nine-page report. That report, of course, was actually about six pages if you exclude the cover page and then the two appendixes at the back. But this book or this, uh, this report, essentially a preliminary assessment on unidentified aerial phenomena. This was produced by the Navy's UAP task force, uh, the creation of which, of course, was initially outlined in a bill uh, last summer and then late last year, we also saw the with the passage of the uh, Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021, we saw essentially the enactment of the UAP task force, which thereby gave them 180 days to produce a report on information collected by government. And this, of course, including military bodies, intelligence agencies, etc., uh, and to produce a report on what data the government had been collecting on unidentified aerial phenomena, more commonly known as UFOs throughout history. Now, the report, a lot of people have been really dissatisfied with it. I've spoken to a lot of people who are you know, UFO proponents. And let me be clear here at the outset, I'm a skeptically minded person about everything. But I am a proponent of the study of UFOs or UAP, call them what you will. And in my opinion, I think that there is at least enough anecdotal data to strongly suggest the presence of objects in our skies we can't identify. Now, we don't know what they are. And this is where I would differ. I mentioned that early book that I was exposed to as a child uh, by Ray Fowler, UFOs, Interplanetary Visitors. The, The issue I would take with a book like that today, many decades after I was first exposed to it, was that at you know, that early age, I would read books like that and just take for granted, oh, UFOs, those are spaceships, right? Piloted by space people. We actually don't know that. That is a leading hypothesis in terms of where the origin for UAP may be, interplanetary, but we don't actually know. And there are other alternative hypotheses, although I would maintain that the so-called extraterrestrial hypothesis is probably one of the most popular. But again, although I actually have certain sympathies for that myself at times, I acknowledge there is not enough evidence yet to actually support that as a conclusive determination about the origins of UAP. We simply don't. So what are they? Where are they from? What do we actually know about them? Well, coming back to this preliminary assessment by the UAP task force, in June of this year, it was delivered to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Um, And I'll backtrack just a little bit before we get to what this report actually said. Really, the whole kind of change in the atmosphere about this topic occurred in late 2017 with the publication of this article. I call it the shot heard around the world. And this was by Ralph Blumenthal, Leslie Kane, veteran UFO reporter and a a very good one. And also the Pentagon correspondent, Helene Cooper to the New York Times. This article, which of course disclosed 
publicly for the first time the existence of a Pentagon program that had already been looking at advanced aerospace threats. This, of course, known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat and Identification Program. I throw that and in there, by the way, because according to a certain government documentation later that outlined the scope of what the ATIP program looked at, they use that. Uh, they add an and, but actually the official name of the program, as I understand it, was uh, just Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Um, we learned about it because the gentleman who had headed this program, a guy who I was literally texting with yesterday about an article I'll tell you about here in a moment, Lou Elizondo, he, he resigned actually in protest and, and left government and came out and, and basically talked about what he had done while in government. Um, this wasn't, I don't think, so much whistleblowing uh, as it was a guy who was dissatisfied with the level of attention that government was putting toward the UAP question at that time, he resigns somewhat in protest and, um, and enters the public sphere and comes out and publicly talks about things that were not classified. And therefore he didn't actually you know, blow the whistle on anything. My interactions with Lou Elizondo uh, as a journalist, having you know, spoken with him off the record and also have having quoted him for articles I've written on the record indicate that Elizondo is very much a patriotic American. You know, he believes in the oaths that he took when he went to work in government. And uh, although there are some questions about, you know, exactly what his job with ATIP was because the Pentagon continues to say that he had no responsibilities, I don't think that that's accurate personally. And as he has maintained, he says that he actually oversaw the program during his tenure with government. But Anyway, all that said, not actually, there's currently, as I understand it, a lawsuit that he has against the Pentagon because he wants clarity brought to that issue. They continue to maintain he had no responsibilities. He says that's not true at all. And I think that there is ample evidence, especially based on the reporting of my colleague, Timothy McMillan, uh, where he's written for Popular Mechanics and more recently for another publication I'll tell you about in a moment, uh, which outlines a lot of Elizondo's past duties. But long story short, when that came out in 2017, everybody's like, whoa. You know, the Pentagon, the U.S. military is taking this subject seriously. That really led to a lot of changes, which we don't have time to discuss all of right now. But leading up to, again, what happened in June, that culminated in after the establishment of the uh, UAP task force under the cognizance of the Department of the Navy. That led to the establishment of this, this task force, which really is essentially just a two or three person unit of people who have other responsibilities within uh, government, but who are analyzing data that's been collected. And this is what their report said, essentially, uh, of 155 instances that they looked at, 144 cases collected since 2004, the majority of these in the last two years, seem to indicate that there are anomalous incidents involving objects, which they do believe to be real technologies, real objects of some kind, if they are technology. That much we really don't know, but we can't identify it if it is technology. And these things are seen in our skies. There were at least 11 incidents that actually involved near misses, near collisions with aircraft that were reported. One of the 155 that were analyzed was determined later to be a deflating balloon, but the others they couldn't identify. Um, there was very little said apart from that in the way of specifics about the objects that were being analyzed. But we do have some idea of what kinds of things were being looked at. And that I think do in part, uh, to an effort that I've been involved with since late 2020. Uh, last year, last December, in fact, I, along with my colleagues, Tim McMillan, who I mentioned earlier, a former law enforcement officer from Savannah, Georgia, and um, my good pal, uh, MJ Benayast from Canada. MJ Benayast, Tim and I, we co-launched a website called The Debrief, thedebrief.org, which was essentially a 
website that would look at defense, technology, science, and all these kind of things. But we have always tried to look at what's happening with this UFO or UAP issue as it currently stands and report on it credibly. You know, not little green men, not speculations about, you know, crash wreckage retrievals and things. Let's report on the government's current efforts to assess and analyze this and what information is being released, as well as what some, in some instances, has actually come to public light as a result of leaks. So that's what the debrief has been reporting on now uh, since last December. And in fact, yesterday, uh, our most recent article, it was authored by yours truly, but there's always a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes going on. MJ Benias, our editor-in-chief, who I just mentioned, uh, was supporting me a lot on this one. Uh, as well as Tim McMillan and others. But the article was titled Pentagon's UAP Task Force to Gain Broader Access to Intelligence on UFOs. To round things out for you here, uh, now within the last few days, in fact, we have seen the passage by the select uh, or the uh, Senate Select uh, Committee on Intelligence. They have <clears throat> they have now um, authorized or, or, or unanimously 16 to zero vote passed the Intelligence Authorization Act for 2022 for next year. There are additional provisions in that bill as well, saying that now they, they hope that the UAP task force uh, will receive basically information on any incidents involving UAP from all branches of intelligence in the government, and that every 90 days they are to report, well, basically, they're supposed to be a quarterly report, actually, is how they term it in the, uh, in the, in the bill. So now every quarter, every, you know, four times a year, we're supposed to now see a report by the UAP task force with additional data being collected on UAP. So all of that to say, I mean, in the last few years, since 2017, we have seen a tremendous change in attitude from government and from also the media and civilian investigators with, you know, with regard to both the legitimacy of this topic, but also the, what I think is, is uh, the severity of understanding what it may represent. Now, the last point I'll make there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, threat assessment, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, and many people take issue with that. A lot of people have asked me, a Forbes reporter, in fact, asked me just a few weeks ago, you know, do you know of any instances where these objects appear to convey some kind of threat to us? There is very little, very little that indicates any kind of overt or intentional threat. But again, what our government does, what our military does, is they look at these sorts of issues within the context of threat assessment. That's what our government and especially what, you know, the folks at the Pentagon are tasked with doing, protecting the homeland and the American interest, the way of life. So I'm glad that they're looking at threat potentials, but there don't seem to be very many overt evidences of threatening behavior by these things. But what we certainly have seen since 2017 and even in recent days is that the government seems to really continue to be broadening the scope of how it looks at, assesses and studies the UAP issue. And I, I gotta tell you, for a kid who started with books when he was five years old, and I'm 38 now, and I'm seeing all this coming together, it's an exciting time to be alive and to really be involved with this subject. Oh, yes. I, I totally agree with that. It's not just little green men anymore, oh. or the you thought know, of little green men. And, and Finley, on that point, you know, I don't mean to use that expression in a pejorative, you know, um, where I say, for instance, at the debrief, MJ and Tim and I and our other fine writers, we've got a lot of wonderful writers, Jazz Shaw, Ryan Sprague, Mike DeMonte, too many to, to list all of them here. Chris Plain, I got to mention him, though, because he's our number one guy. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, with the launch of this, this uh, 
this media outlet, you know, I, I never saw myself as being a guy who would launch a media outlet, but you know, with everything that's happened in recent years, I felt it was apropos at the moment, <laughs> take a little time off from caving and, and looking for monsters and let's, let's report on the, <laughs> the, the, the military's involvement in UAP studies, you know, that seemed like a good idea, but all that said, um, we shouldn't ignore the historical accounts where people claim to have actually observed occupants of these objects. And that, to me, represents a bit of a disconnect. I mean, we are reporting on this very credibly in a sober fashion. But what troubles me a little with the current reporting, again, in, in the actual UAP task force report, the preliminary assessment that came out back in June, they talk about the historically limited involvement by the U.S. Air Force. Now, what they mean is, of course, that the U.S. Air Force didn't adopt a systematic reporting mechanism uh, that the U that the uh, U.S. Navy instituted first back, I think, in uh, spring of 2019. I think the U.S. Air Force only instituted this, you know, this uh, what they refer to as a um, a reporting mechanism. And uh, this was and basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to encourage servicemen and women who have had experiences, especially in the line of duty or during training opera, you know, operations, you know, ex exercises, what have you. It's a formalized reporting mechanism for members of these branches of government to when they have experiences or observe things. And if there's instrumental data collected about those objects, then that should be reported. The Navy started in early 2019, the U.S. Air Force only late last year. But if we go all the way back to the 1960s, let's please not forget about Project Sign, you know, which actually began in the 40s, Project Grudge, and then beginning in 1952, I believe, Project Blue Book, which ran until early 1969. That was the longest running and the most complete systematic study by the U.S. government into UFOs. And they didn't, I mean, they collected thousands of reports. Hundreds of them, uh, I think around 700, remained unidentified in what we might call good reports. Uh, I don't know if the current UAP task force is going to look at those historical reports, but I hope that, that that is not left completely out of the dialogue because we need to understand how long this phenomenon has been present. We need to understand you know, how long there has appeared to be a technology that far exceeds anything that we know to exist. We need, we need to also be considering what the source might be and whether these indeed are piloted technologies or if they are remotely controlled or what have you. But again, some of the data, some of the data on this from over the years does seem to indicate good observations by certain observers of purported occupants. And so that shouldn't be left entirely out of the dialogue. I realize that the current efforts by the UAP task force look at this in the capacity of, well, we feel like what we are dealing with needs to be studied in the context of the hardest data we can provide. So when we've got radar, when we've got visual, if we've got FLIR footage, you know, if we've got, you know, sonar, you know, if we've got, I mean, any, because again, something else that's been discussed quite a bit, I'll refer again to an article by my colleague, Tim McMillan, um, transmedium vehicles. These are not aircraft as we know them. These are objects that move through the air, but they can go through the water apparently with the same ease that they can travel through the air. I would that's, one of the, that's one of the ahead. questions I had is, where do you think, do you think they could be coming from the water? Well, because they do seem to have that capacity to, to go in and out of it. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, that is, again, really one of the main reasons I think it's important 
that we do not ignore the historical data. Because if we go back to Blue Book, we will see that indeed a number of incidents reported by members of the military during the Blue Book years over the span of close to two decades involved sightings of these objects either passing over, entering into, or coming out of large bodies of water, especially oceans, which really raises a lot of questions. Um, in, in recent days, uh, to give you a brief example of the kinds of things that we've been reporting at the debrief, and including, uh, you know, in addition to the article that I dropped yesterday, uh, which is kind of the most significant development we've seen since this report dropped last year. Again, my colleague, Tim McMillan, really the, uh, around the time of launch last December, our, uh, you know, when we, when we kicked off and, and set sail, we launched with Tim's article on fast movers and transmedium vehicles. And this remains sort of a co cornerstone of the kind of reporting that we do at the debrief. In Tim's article, uh, he talked about sources close to the efforts of the current UAP task force and those familiar with matters in Washington uh, and really more broadly in the, in the military, a widely circulated document, uh, which as I understand it, I think that the document had been unclassified, um, but this, 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 this file basically was looking at a number of UAP related incidents had actually been in circulation, I think a couple of summers prior to the establishment of the UAP task force. And, but let's keep in mind again, that's not strange considering the fact that back in 2017, of course, we were learning about ATIP. So really what we might say in summary is that for close to the last decade, I mean, the Pentagon has been fairly actively, even though it's been a small scale operation, there has been an act active effort to collect data and assess this data about UAP. But what was being circulated uh, with this, you know, with this, uh, you know, collection of files, as Tim reported on in his article, had been also a photograph apparently collected by a fighter pilot uh, who had uh, seen an object uh, apparently emerging from the ocean. This photograph has not been released, to my knowledge. It has not appeared anywhere, has not been leaked or anything like that, but a number of people have said that they've seen it. Um, and what it purports to show is a large triangular-shaped craft or object emerging from the ocean and flying up and and essentially uh, intersecting, I guess, perpendicularly to the line of sight or the flight path of the fighter jet pilot. And so that's a, a rough description of what this photograph, which many in government uh, say that they have seen. We've spoken to a number of people who claim to have seen it. So it's an interesting uh, development. A lot of people have wondered if this photo will ever come to light. But that, to me, is a good indication of the kinds of things that the UAP task force have probably looked at, which we have not seen specific references made to in the report. Again, I'll note that in the current report, there are no specific details about any of the 144 incidents that they analyzed. There are discussions about things like the flight dynamics, you know, rapid acceleration, capability of turning very quickly and, and seemingly not being affected by G-forces and other kinds of physical effects, and thereby this is a technology we can't understand very easily. No mention, by the way, Hadley, of the so-called transmedium capabilities of these things going into the water, but at the time that Tim wrote his article, uh, this according to those in the know whom he had spoken with, and by the way, this has been echoed uh, since Tim's reporting by other reporters. Another guy, uh, Gideon Lewis Krauss, writing for The New Yorker, did a very lengthy article a few weeks ago, made you know quite a splash. There was a lot of discussion about that article, uh, but uh, uh, Gideon's article also uh, seemed to indicate that a lot of people in government were saying, you know, that we need to be paying attention to the fact that these things appear to be able to travel into the water, 
Could they actually be traversing the Earth's oceans using that for transportation? Could the depths of the oceans be a location where they might actually be able to, you know, hide out? Could there be a, rather than an alien base on a nearby planet or moon, you know, might, might, and again, here we have to be careful about, you know, presuming where this phenomena comes from. But again, let's say for a moment, for the sake of argument, we're talking about alien visitors, right? Extraterrestrials. Might they use our own oceans as a location to be able to maintain privacy while operating here on earth? Not impossible. Yeah. <laughs> Not impossible. So yeah, you know, so there has been a lot of discussion about that, even though it was that was not included in the preliminary assessment back in June. Uh, our reporting has indicated that there's quite a lot of interest in this transmedium capability. And again, that's something that we've seen all the way back to the days of Blue Book, maybe earlier. Well, and, and that just brings me to another point. Um, I, I was, again, tooling around online looking for some of your media that's out there and I found where you had done a lecture on the Friendship Island um I guess case in mm -hmm. Chile and I was I was fascinated by it I had a gentleman come on the show when we first started our um, little podcast here that had written a book about it so I was familiar with it and I wanted to hear more about your thoughts on that because I was just, like I said, um, you had a lot more information than he did. So I was just interested. Well, that's a case I've followed for a long time. And uh, in part, my interest in the Latin American uh, ufological situation, and there are different terms, again, UFO being the, I've called it an, ac called it an acronym and people have taken issue with that because uh, to say UFO, that's actually an abbreviation, not an acronym. <coughs> but if, if we go back to how, Edward Ruppelt, the first head of Project Blue Book, had said in the report on unidentified flying objects, his fantastic book from the 1950s, how he said we should pronounce it. He said it's pronounced UFO. So if properly pronounced UFO, it is actually an acronym, but I digress. I'm good for doing that. Um, they're not called UFOs in other parts of the world. Uh, in Latin America, we might hear everything from um, <laughs> Pratu. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a moment. More commonly, OVNI is what you would hear. But my interest in the Latin American uh, ufological situation has actually encouraged me to enrich my language skills in Portuguese as well as Espanol, um, because I had this brilliant idea. I thought, you know, with all the stuff that happens down there, if I could speak at least Portuguese and, and Spanish, I could essentially travel through most parts of uh, Latin America and I could continue to study this. Now, with regard to the, <laughs> the topic that you're discussing right there. I have long been interested in some of the developments, the ufological developments in Latin America on account of two primary issues. One of them has to do with, um, in the late 1970s, but really not exclusive to that period. Actually, for years, there have been a number of uh, what we might call kind of flaps or waves, uh, to borrow terminology that would be utilized by the uh, JLN Hynek Center for UFO Studies. And again, Dr. Mark Rodiger can give you a wonderful breakdown about the difference between flaps and waves. We'll omit that for the time being. Uh, in, in the 1970s, there was enough interest in sightings that were occurring, alleged injuries that were occurring from people who claimed that they were being shot by lasers and things that or beams of light, at least that were emanating from objects in the sky uh, and other kinds of things that the actual Brazilian government did get involved. And there was a Operacional uh, do Prato, in other words, Operation Saucer, but Pratu actually would mean plate. Like if you go and you order the special of the day, Pratu do dia, right? Or do dia, I guess is how they'd pronounce it. 
And uh, so I love how they don't have a direct corollary for Saucer, so Operacio de, de, uh, de Prato. But the, the Brazilian government studied UFOs, and uh, a number of those documents were released. Uh, A.J. Javard, the best, in my opinion, Brazilian UFO researcher, uh, has analyzed those extensively. But we skip over to Chile and what you're asking about. This is the second most interesting case, which is not explicitly related to UFOs per se, like the Operation Saucer thing in, in the 1970s, which resulted in a government study of UFOs outside the U.S. government. But again, if we're going to talk about governments getting involved, to me, the Operation Saucer thing in the 70s was incredibly important. And many of those files, film footage, photographs of the objects, can still actually be retrieved from the Brazilian National Archives. But in Chile, the story of Friendship Island is another really strange one. The reason I began to look into this is because I wanted to know, first of all, two questions. People often say that UFOs are strangely exclusive to the United States, that other countries don't seem to have as much activity. Is this indeed what some skeptics would call a culture-bound phenomenon? I would argue I don't think that's the case. I think you the, there's a lot more attention paid to UFOs in the United States, but I don't think that that necessarily means that this is the only country where they are seen. And the other question I had was, if they do occur, if they are seen in other countries, what are the cultural attitudes about them there? And does this in any way suggest what the source of the phenomenon might be? So the Friendship Island case is a really strange thing, because what we have is, beginning, I guess, in the 1980s, uh, there was a, um, I believe that he was actually a smuggler uh, who, who piloted a small boat, uh, Octavio Ortiz, I believe was his name. And he had claimed that he had begun to get these unusual radio messages while he would be um, sailing out there around Chiloé Island, which is Chiloé Island is a um, a large island off the coast of Chile, um, which is near, I guess the nearest town would be Puerto Montt. And he had basically been tasked with making some deliveries, so he claimed, to an island out there. Um and it was obvious that whoever was out there on this island was trying to use networks of smugglers and people to bring in, you know, data information, not so much data and information, but I mean, actual material goods out to their island so that they could maintain operations in secrecy. Um, the, uh, that was one aspect of it. And, uh, and Ortiz claimed to have, you know, spoken on raid on, on his radio from aboard his, uh, his boat with some of the, denizens you know out there on the island and said that even sometimes when they would communicate with him that bright lights would appear in the sky um the next i guess most significant development had been around 19 i think it was 86 and nesto de la fuente was this man who had gone on television and had said that basically he was i think he had a form of cancer and that he was paid a visit by these people who had he had done some work for or had helped um these holy brothers from this island that was called friendship and these holy brothers said that they essentially, uh, first of all, according to uh, De La Fuente, they all had names like Raphael, you know, Michelangelo, you know, um, names like Renaissance painters and 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 uh, you know, and saints and what like. So <clears throat> he said that they actually took him out and said, for some work that you've done for us, you know, we'll we'll cure you of your ailment. And he was. He claimed that he was cured. Um, I wrote an article about it uh, a number of years ago, and incidentally a man identifying himself as the nephew of Ernesto de la Fuente posted on there and said, I'm actually his nephew. And I got to tell you, you know, Ernesto, there were always weird things that happened. Paranormal kind of phenomena just seemed to like follow this guy around. 
but he always maintained that, uh, you know, that, that he had actually had these encounters with these so-called holy brothers. Well, I dug fairly deep into it. And again, reading a lot of the fairly obscure articles for American audiences, but these were, you know, published in a number of Latin American ufological magazines. And there was a, a, a Latin American sociologist who actually looked pretty deeply into all of this. Uh, the stories, the kinds of stories that we would see would be that there was a, a boat, they said, that would actually dock there in Puerto Montt. It was called the Mitalus II. And that the Mitalus would show up there at Puerto Montt. Uh, that these often what were termed as gringos, but they said that there were people who spoke English, people who spoke German, and of course, people who spoke Espanol who would show up there at Puerto Montt. And uh, they would often pay with uh, rare metals and things like that. They would purchase cattle. Often, if there were sickly looking cattle, they would buy those first. Uh, according to the investigations of this of this sociologist, he had said that in one instance, one of them had actually paid with a check, and the check had been from like the Mind Science Foundation. Now, that was a research and development organization that was actually founded by one Tom Slick, who at the beginning of the interview, I mentioned he had funded the Yeti and then the Bigfoot uh, investigations in the 1960s prior to his untimely death in a air crash over Montana. I've been very interested in Tom Slick for a long time because there have been some, including the fantastic researcher Loring Coleman, uh, who have looked at the possibility that Tom Slick had some CIA connections. And in fact, I actually have managed to find documents that were later released by the CIA. Uh, and this is a part of a, a, a tremendous cache of documents related to the Second World War and, and the pursuit of Nazi war criminals that were released by the CIA a number of years thereafter. Um, there was a document about Klaus Barbie, the so-called Butcher of Lyon. He did escape to uh, South America and actually was a CIA informant for a number of years before he was eventually apprehended and then he was uh, extradited. And I think he actually uh, served trial in, in France but, uh, and of course, was found guilty for his criminal activities during the war. But um, in one of the documents about Klaus Barbie, they talk about the fact that uh, there was a, an alleged connection between Barbie and Tom Slick. And the CIA's estimation had been that they had had numerous contacts with Slick over the, over the years, but there was no evidence that he was an agent or that uh, he had ever actually worked officially for the CIA. Uh, so brief notes and aside, I find it interesting that there's that possible connection with Tom Slick, a guy who was funding efforts to find the abominable snowman and Sasquatch, and who actually founded a mind science organization in the 1940s in Texas, which supposedly had a link to what, you know, the funding mechanisms for this operation down there off the coast of Chile might have been. All that to say, a number of uh, Latin American ufologists have looked into this over the years, and you hear different takes on it. Some people think of the Friendship Island affair as like the Area 51 of Latin America. This island out there, maybe an underground facility somewhere on this island, is where you know experimental technologies are developed and things along those lines. Some think that there's an alien base out there. Now, I would probably gravitate more toward like the idea of the experimental technology thing. Um, one researcher had actually determined that there had been an island purchased off the coast of Chile toward the end of the Second World War by Berlin, and that this... Uh, this property after the war, I mean, might have been acquired or might have been used or repurposed or something along those lines. Some have thought that it might be some sort of a joint American operation, an extension of Project Paperclip. This, of course, being an operation um, after the Second World War where Nazi uh, scientists, you know, rocket scientists like Hermann uh, or, or uh, rather Hermann Oberth and uh, Werner von Braun actually came to work for our space program. Uh, 
there were many that went to work for Russia as well. But there are certain insinuations about whether this might have had something to do with that. Again, it's all speculation, essentially. But again, these sort of rumors coming out of uh, Chile uh, about this interest in, in Friendship Island, I've seen certain skeptical websites kind of say the island that never existed. There's no evidence in support of it. But I found something rather interesting just a few years ago that was almost startling to me. In a Puerto Montt newspaper, there had been a ad, an English language ad that was placed by a man who identified himself only as a uh, engineer from Sarasota, Florida. And I've got screen grabs from this. <laughs> the letter that he published in English language in this Puerto Montt newspaper said, to Friendship Island, I am the mechanical engineer in Sarasota, Florida that you visited last year. When you came to my home, I didn't know who you are and you frightened me, but now I know who you are and I want to visit your home. Contact me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so again, that isn't in itself proof of the existence of Friendship Island, but you know, based on the investigations uh, you know, by the Latin American UFO community and uh, based on those kinds of things and the apparent continuing interest in it, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost more of like a rumor of something unusual down there off the coast of Chile, but it has long fascinated me because, again, it sounds somewhat like the idea that was proposed by UFO researcher Richard Dolan some time ago about a so-called breakaway civilization. Um, what that entailed was the idea that certain experimental technologies might be developed outside the purview of government, um, not entirely outside of government, but, you know, basically off the books, black pro programs, deep black programs for purposes of, you know, maintaining complete secrecy. Um, now, again, that's a speculative situation, but again, in my opinion, it's one that should be explored in relation to understanding the broader UAP issue. Um, I couldn't tell you that there is convincing evidence that UFOs are all just secret black budget programs. But I mean, a lot of people in the current dialogue who are looking at this situation and saying, well, there's obviously some kind of technology, but we don't see any overt evidence that aliens are visiting Earth. So how do we reconcile this? Well, we have to assume maybe this is stuff of our own. Again, following similar logic over the years, I've looked at instances that might offer clues as to what kind of earthly technologies could account for these UFOs. And again, the strange affair of Friendship Island was one of them that I looked at. But unfortunately, there's just not enough data uh, to really substantiate what's going on there, apart from those kinds of whispers and rumors we're talking about. So there's the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still fascinating. Um, and that kind of brings me back around to this other topic I wanted to to throw at you, which is, what do you think about the millionaires we see going into outer space? And do you think that ties into this phenomenon that we're seeing? Could it be that there's been funding from private sources to develop some kind of different type of technology that no one really knows about because it's privately done? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, I'll tell you this. Either Elon Musk knows what the source of this technology is, if it is from Earth, or he has no clue about it and has no interest in it, okay? And that is actually his stated position. But I've often wondered about this. You know, Elon has tweeted things like, I would know, of all people, if we were being visited, I would know if aliens were coming to Earth. And I'm like, well, how sure about that are you? 
I'm not sure he's not an alien. Yeah, no. <laughs> I've speculated about this myself. I mean, sometimes late at night when I can't sleep, I'm laying there awake. That's exactly where my mind goes. Elon or alien? <laughs> but, I mean, again, here is one of the arguably one of the most successful and also one of the most intelligent people on the planet. Uh, and I actually am a tremendous supporter of Elon because I think that um, more so than his, um, I don't know if you'd call them colleagues, but I guess, you know, his competitors, uh, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, Elon really seems to be trying to foster a scientific component for the civilian space program, whereas Branson and Bezos, they want to they get up there to what qualifies as space according to some, but I mean, there were people those, before I think Bezos had even made it back to earth. There were people saying, and even the FAA and others uh, saying that, you know, no, he didn't actually go into space according to the new de you know designations of what actually qualifies as space. So anyway, not to nitpick, they're really looking at the commercial side of this. How can we get to space and how can we break records and how can we eventually move toward charging people who are wealthy enough who want to go to space themselves? Now, of course, I catch some flack about this. I write a uh, weekly newsletter called the Intelligence Brief for the Debrief, and one of the beats I follow is developments in the in the current 21st century space race. And I try to look at all angles. You know, I try not to only be critical of these guys. I, you know, I see the benefit in what's going on. Obviously, if we, as Branson has called it, uh, the democratization of space, and I've tweeted this expression a couple of times and people are like, what does that even mean? Well, what Branson means when he says it is the the entry into space and the accessibility to space is no longer going to be something that only government agencies can do with the advent of commercial enterprises with technological capabilities of taking people to space. So that's a very exciting side of all this, that in the future, those who have the money and who want to be able to go to space will be able to, but more importantly, my hope is that this will eventually lead to uh, expanded scientific, uh, you know, pursuits that and an expanded access to space for scientific organizations. We're already seeing NASA, the U.S. <laughs> program, you know, bless you. <laughs> we're already seeing NASA benefit from. Elon Musk and what he's doing. And again, that's why I would say that, you know, Musk is very different from his other two competitors in the sense that what Musk is doing is directly supporting us putting astronauts up there on the International Space Station and into space. And, you know, the continuation of space operations aimed at doing science. So, you know, Elon's a very important person in all this, one of the most important, uh, really. But the thing I think that we have to really recognize in terms of his possible relationship to the UAP thing, his stated position on this is, you know, I would know if we were being visited by aliens. And he seems to really show no public interest whatsoever, whatsoever in the UFO question. And when in instances where he has actually discussed that, you know, it's been very brief mentions and he kind of plays it down, you know, or kind of, if anything, is, is fairly uh, dismissive of it. So, you know, that troubles me a bit because unless he's lying and, and is very involved <laughs> behind the scenes in some way, I don't think that's probably the case. The alternative is that, you know, the guy who's leading in many ways, the current space race seems to have no interest in the apparent presence of tech presence of technologies in our atmosphere that far exceed our best spacefaring capabilities. I would love to see more of our greatest scientific minds like Elon Musk really saying, okay, you know what, 
we're going to get to the bottom of this because I'm going to tell you right now, next to our government, any capabilities they may have, it really all comes down to money, doesn't it, right? I mean, the military with its annual budget of what is it like, you know, $7 billion annually, more than that, they're going to be able to, the DOD's annual budget is where you're going to see enough money to actually, and it may not necessarily be that there's, you know, strict funding appropriated for the study of UAP. What we're doing, what we're, how we're actually collecting UAP right now in government is existing systems in use by other military bodies that are performing entirely separate functions, having no specific relationship to UAP whatsoever. But when UAP observations are made and there's instrumental data collected by those branches of government, again, branches of our military, Navy, Air Force, what have you, intelligence agencies, this may include satellite data in addition to other things that we were discussing earlier, like FLIR technologies, radar, what have you. if there is data collected, then it's supposed to be reported back to the UAP task force. I don't know how much funding there is behind the UAP task force, but I can tell you, it's two or three people sitting up there <laughs> analyzing stuff that other branches of government are collecting when and if they occur. So we aren't putting a lot of money behind studying UFOs, not in government at least. I'm glad to see that the government is looking at it, but there's not money being put behind it. And so if you really want to see the furtherance of our knowledge of what UAP might be, you need money and you need people who are interested enough to put money behind it. So again, coming back to Elon Musk, the best thing I think that we could see right now is people in the in the civilian sector, people outside of government who have the interest and the wherewithal to fund serious scientific pursuit of this topic. Now, Elon remains resistant, but there is hope, okay? Uh, because Avi Loeb, the astronomer from Harvard, recently announced the launch of what he calls this, you know, this Galileo project, which is going to be looking for techno signatures of possible extraterrestrials, but they explicitly say we're going to be looking at UAP. And, uh, you know, I spoke with Avi a number of months ago, in fact, when his book Extraterrestrial came out, this book was about Oumuamua, this mysterious interstellar object, of course, that astronomers observed. Now, Avi thinks there's a good chance that was an alien probe. I'm a little more skeptical. And I I've actually am with more members of the astronomical community in the sense that I think that that probably was a space rock of some kind. But, you know, I'm very glad that someone with the clout that Avi Loeb has and his colleagues, that they're going to be looking at UAP. I think yet again, if we can't get Elon on board, Avi <laughs> is probably the best <laughs> that we've got right now who are looking at it. Well, that's great. So let me ask you this. How do you think the um, Space Force ties into all this? I don't think that there's any kind of intentional connection. Now, I will say this. The fact that we have a Space Force now is something actually uh, a lot of people, a lot of people have incorrectly viewed that as being a vanity pursuit of the last administration. We won't get into politics right now. But I do want to point out that that's incorrect because I've seen members of the media, you know, talking about, you know, well, if we can associate this with the last administration, you know, we can delegitimize it somehow. Let me be very clear. There was a serious investigation into whether the necessity for a space force as an exterior branch of the military, separate that is from, you know, U.S. Space Command operated under the U.S. Air Force. Uh, 
going all the way back at least to around 2001, Donald Rumsfeld and a, and a number of others actually under the Bush administration produced a lengthy document, which their conclusion essentially was, yes, we think that it, it really actually would be more beneficial to have a separate branch of the military that's looking at space affairs as we move into the 21st century. And we look at the possibilities and potentials for you know warfare in space. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean spaceships up there blasting each other. I mean, that could be uh, nuclear devices or weapons launched from orbital spacecraft. That could mean uh, spy satellites and espionage being conducted from space, which is happening right now. Hello. <laughs> you exactly. Know? Satellite on. killers. What was it there, Scott? Oh, the satellite killers. The satellite killers. Exactly. That's happening yeah. right now. Again, we're very concerned about a lot of the Russian satellite technologies that might be used, anti-satellite technologies that they're putting into orbit and what have you, and also ground-based anti-satellite technologies. Um, so Rumsfeld uh, and, and others in the Bush administration, as far back as 2001, were looking at the necessity for there being a space force, but then 9-11 happened and, and it got kind of couched. There were others in more recent years who continued to try and say we really need to be talking about this, but it wasn't until the last administration that we really saw action taken and the official establishment of the Space Force. Now, what's interesting to me about this, and it may be entirely coincidental, but 1947 is when the so-called you know UFO enigma breaks into public consciousness in the United States, and that was also when we saw the establishment of the U.S. Air Force, apart from the U.S. Army Air Force. It's interesting that with all the current dialogue about UAP coinciding with the Pentagon officially announcing that it had footage of objects in three instances depicting objects that they couldn't identify. It's fascinating that the Pentagon admits that they had footage of aerial objects of unknown provenance the same year that they launched the U.S. Space Force. History, they say, repeats itself. This, whether it's coincidence or not, certainly is one of those instances. <laughs> <laughs> It's definitely not a coincidence. Maybe not. But I mean, here's the thing. And I'll just to wrap that up. I would say that, again, as the military continues to look at UAP, um, depending on what kind of data is produced by the UAP task force in the years ahead, and as outlined, again, just at the end of July with the passage of the fiscal year 2022 Intelligence Authorization Act, depending on what kind of data is forthcoming, I mean, it very well likely may be the case that the U.S. Space Force will be the branch of the military that maybe ends up leading uh, in terms of UAP studies. But currently, I think that as such a new branch of the military, they I don't think that there are any responsibilities right now that I know of uh, that have been outlined as far as the mission of the U.S. Space Force in relation to UAP studies. It really still seems to be something that, again, strangely, the Navy is looking at, but maybe that's not so strange in light of all these, you know, incidents involving these so-called transmedium things. Maybe that's exactly where UFO studies should be for the time being. <laughs> I feel like we don't know what's in the water, but it's just, it's too vast and we just don't have the technology to really figure that out. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that's where, if anywhere, that's where it's coming from. Which is a really eerie kind of sentiment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Who knows? It could be Atlantis. <laughs> well, Atlantis is an interesting what you one, know, too. And the water is already scary enough. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Micah, I was listening. You have a superb grasp of this, of the topic, UFO versus UAPs, how the government's reacting to it. That's why I've been so silent. It's just like, 
I'm absorbing it all in. And yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I was very impressed with the fact when the government used to say it's an unidentified flying object, they used to mean we have no clue what it is. Right. Everybody else said, oh, it's a, it's a spaceship. It's close encounters of the third kind. But, you know, you were talking about the fact that it may be, it could be a Russian or a Chinese drone. It could be something that could be a threat to our military, our intelligence value. So that was fascinating listening to you. Well, you know, I think we need to be open and thank you for that, Scott. But I think we need to be open to those possibilities that, you know, there could be a source here on Earth. And again, I with the Friendship Island question, I'm glad you asked about that, Hadley. Uh, that is a, a more esoteric angle in terms of looking at a possible earthly connection. But I'll just point out, again, referring to one of Tim's articles there at the debrief in recent days, uh, shortly after the Pentagon, well, again, we collectively say the Pentagon, but really it was the UAP task force under the cognizance of the Navy, and it was delivered to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. But this preliminary report on UAP, after it was released, Russia started tweeting pictures. Uh, one of the pictures that was really odd was a Billy Meyer-esque landscape. Billy Meyer, of course, being from the 1970s, a purported UAP or UFO contactee who took photographs of flying saucers and things. And you can literally buy like coffee table books. Uh, I think one was called UFOs Contact from the Pleiades that are, uh, you know, coffee table books full of pictures of UFOs and flying saucers that Meyer claimed that he photographed. But it's a Billy Meyer-esque, and most of people would, would contend that they are indeed hoaxes. But uh, but the photo looks like a Billy Meyer photograph, but with a like a chess piece in the sky, a knight. And it says, guys, this isn't as hard to figure out as you're making it out to be. This, again, being tweeted by like an official Russian military Twitter account. And they appear to be sort of trolling the United States, as Tim put it, saying, you guys and your UFO stuff, this isn't as hard to figure out as you think. And then just days later, Russia announces they've got a new supersonic aircraft. So Russia seems to be, if we were to interpret this, and I think I would view this as having been Tim's interpretation, they appeared to try to be saying, whatever this weird stuff you guys can't figure out is, probably belongs to us. I go stew on that. But I'm going to tell you this. The new jet that the Russians rolled out, mm-hmm. not even comparable to what Commander Dave Fravor, uh, Alex Dietrich, now Commander Chad Underwood, wasn't a commander at the time that he obtained the fo- footage, but he was the one who actually obtained the footage of the so-called Tic Tac and gave it that name using the Raytheon's Atflare targeting pod. This object, whatever this thing was, roughly the size of an FA-18 Hornet, uh, this object, again, had no wings, uh, apparently had no seams of any kind. There was no discernible cockpit. Uh, but this thing was obviously aware of their presence. And as Fravor described, when he went down to try and dive and get a closer look, this thing shoots up past him and he says it's gone. I've sought clarification from people about that. And uh, when they say it disappeared, I don't think they're saying it just mysteriously vanished. They're saying this thing accelerated out of our field of view so quickly. Now, if Russia's got that, or China has that. We're talking about technological advancements so far beyond anything that are known. But here's the problem with that. In recent days, of course, we had a incident on board the International Space Station where a Russian spacecraft uh, experienced an anomaly and its thrusters began to fire and sent the 
International Space Station actually flip-flopping, tumbling. It was moving so slowly that the astronauts aboard couldn't actually perceive the movement. But nonetheless, it was moving slow though it was, significantly enough that aerospace experts were saying that it could have risked destroying some of the actual portions of the space station, if not tearing it apart. Um, now, accidents do happen. But again, Russia has been widely criticized over this incident. We also had in recent days a Chinese satellite re-entry that was completely uncontrolled. NASA got after them about that. My point is this. If China and Russia can't even control their spacecraft, how are we supposed to believe that they have something that appears to be decades in advance of the best that we know to exist anywhere in the world? It just does not add up. And in fact, again, one might say that the past is prologue. If we go all the way back to 1961, one of the early directors of the Central Intelligence Agency, Roscoe Hillencotter, later became a member of what at that time was the largest civilian UFO investigative group, which was NICAB, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And Hillencotter said, after analyzing all the data we have on these objects, they do not appear to be Soviet or any other adversarial nation. We were saying that in 1961. In my opinion, that remains true today. I don't think that based on the flight capabilities and the dynamics of the aircraft as described by members of our military who have seen these things, I don't think that what is being described sounds like something that Russia has. And they can tease all they want, but I don't think that they make a compelling argument that they are the ones behind this. And there's, in fact, no evidence for that. There's no evidence at all that supports this, the provenance of this technology, whatever it is. You've blown my mind. <laughs> this is no, I agree. <laughs> See, I also just wonder if we're getting to the point where so many people believe in UFOs. You know, whether it's just a general, there has to be life out there up to the people who believe every story. I always just sometimes wonder if the government is paving the way, hmm. you know, UFO. Yeah. Well, you know, we call them UAPs officially and the Navy showed the footage of that, uh, the craft they were chasing mm -hmm. and all the reports that are coming. I'm just wondering if five, 10, 15 years from now, the government's going to come out and say, yeah, we're not alone in the universe. It would be interesting. It would certainly be interesting. You know, I recently spoke with a uh, former uh, lieutenant uh, colonel in the in the Army and now uh, retired, but uh, John B. Alexander, Ph.D. John Alexander, for some reason, I, I actually think he's a, he's a great commentator, but I think he's been a little controversial in UFO circles for years, and I really know where this comes from. And, you know, I think, Scott, you could probably relate to this. Having formerly worked in government or for government, you know, people are always like, ah, you know, you're a G-man, right? And, well, you know, John Alexander also, while working within the government, was very interested in UFOs, formed a research unit. Um, all personnel with this informal research unit had classification. And they were essentially looking for information. They presumed that there probably was some sort of a black budget program, but they found no evidence of anything. Nor did they find any evidence of investigative uh, efforts by or from within government looking for UFOs. Now, everyone that he spoke to, all the branches that they went to, uh, Alexander said that essentially, uh, as he put it to me, he says, I would try to get them pregnant. And he said what that meant was I would always ask for something. You know, here's what we're trying to find out. And 
can we get support from this agency or from your, your branch? And he said, overwhelmingly, we would get support from people. And yet we never found evidence of serious actual government interest in investigations into funding behind efforts to try and find UFOs. And so John, I think, became very controversial because he wrote a book called UFOs, Myths, Conspiracies, and Realities, where he basically said, after having worked in government for years and had a group of people with classified uh, with security clearances at various levels, uh, and having worked with people in classified positions in government looking for data they may have had on UFOs, he says our conclusion was government isn't looking at this very much. You know, there's not very much data. Now, see, there, there you go. See, many people are like, well, I don't know. And it seems obvious. Let me give you a let me give you a story. This Please. is true. I swear to God, this is true, uh, because I'm known for being a jokester. My first job in the government was I worked for an organization called the Foreign Broadcast Information Service. Mm -hmm. We monitored foreign media, uh, North Korea at the time, the Soviet Union, Communist China, just to see what they were saying. Because, you know, back then, how communist media spoke signified what they'd be doing later. And this was in summer of 1990, before the Soviet Union collapsed. And I was on the Ukraine desk, and I read a report about UFOs sighted over Kiev. Hmm. Now, I'm a history major. I remember in the 1940s when the Cold War scare started, and everybody was running around because of the Soviets. And that's when the UFO sighting started. And some people thought that the UFO scare in this country was actually part of the Red Scare. So I pulled the report. I had my people write it up and I published it. And my boss gave me a hard time. What the hell are you doing? No, UFOs don't exist. And I explained my rationale. Well, later that day, I was working late and I was sitting at the desk and I got a call. And it was someone from somewhere deep in the agency because it was an internal phone wanting to know if I had any more reports of UFOs, flying saucers, cryptids, anything unusual coming out of the Ukraine or the Soviet Union. Huh. So somebody somewhere is interested. Oh, yeah. yeah. But you know what that sounds like? I mean, I'll say it sounds very much like John Alexander and what he was. I'm not saying that that's who that was, but I'm saying right. It sounds like what he was trying to do. And again, I don't doubt at all that there are people in government who are interested in this stuff. Um, I am glad, though, that there appears to be now a bit more of a systematic effort to try and study them. But now the problem, the other question we have about this is, well, OK, great. Our, our military is looking at this and they're collecting information, which, as the Intelligence Authorization Act that was passed just days ago states, uh, data collected upon this shall be submitted in classified form. And then, of course, there'll be unclassified reports released, but based on the one that we've already seen, no specifics whatsoever are given, only generalizations. Now, there are a lot of technical details, but they are still general technical details. No specific indi you know, indications about you know, dates, time, places, names of observers, you know, descriptions of the objects even. They're just saying we're, we're seeing things we can't identify. So one must ask. When will we be able to see this data? When will there be more specifics? Now, again, my colleague, John Greenwald, who runs the Black Vault website, John has been diligently going about trying to get information. Uh, and in fact, actually pursuing trying to get um, the, well, again, he's trying to get unredacted versions of the report that was actually delivered to Congress uh, released. 
the preliminary assessment, the report that was made publicly available was nine pages. I think John's gotten confirmation that the actual report delivered to Congress was only 17. We all thought it would be about 75. Mm-hmm. I find it really hard to believe that that's all the data that we've got. 17 pages of information on UAP. Guys, if you if you remember, uh, former DNI John Ratcliffe appeared on television uh, on more than one occasion saying, you know, we've been collecting all kinds of multi-sensor data, satellite imagery, things like this. As I've mentioned, you know, over at the debrief, we've reported on photographs that, you know, members of government have said that they have seen and actually some that have actually leaked, although I think that they came from outside of government initially. They don't show anything particularly revelatory. One of the more, the more widely discussed photographs in recent days appears to show a party city Batman balloon, but the uh, UAP task force has said that, well, no, that's what it looks like. But, you know, the, the pilots who observed this thing said that it wasn't moving. It was just kind of hovering in place. And again, uh, Lieutenant Ryan Graves, who was quoted in the New York Times back in, I believe, 2019, and actually uh, probably the most recent appearance he's made in the media was in my article yesterday because uh, Lieutenant Graves gave a very nice quote about this for my article. But Ryan had said when he appeared on 60 Minutes that we were seeing these things for a period of about two years almost every day, objects up there in controlled airspace. So again, I think that if if our military servicemen and women, you know, Navy pilots or whatever, have been observing objects sometimes as frequently as every day for periods of, of two years, and all we've got 17 pages, there's a huge disconnect here. There's so to your point, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, I bet somebody is interested. And yeah, I bet that there is more data. I'm sure that there's more data. When will we get to see it? <laughs> my guess from my experience is anything on that level anything that would prove the existence of alien life forms visiting earth is probably at such a high classification level that maybe 10 15 people in the government know it and i i don't think they'll release it for a while i personally i think it would be such a nightmare if you if if a world government us, the Chinese, the Russians came out and said, yeah, there's alien life forms out there. Everything we knew would disintegrate. You know, it would, wouldn't become us and the Japanese and the Chinese and the Russians. It almost overnight would become, and I know I'm exaggerating, but like a Star Trek. Yeah. We would be not Russians, Japanese. We'd be humans and Anunnaki or whatever they call themselves. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if the governments of the world would I don't know if the governments of the world think we're ready. And honestly, I don't know if we're ready. I don't either. Yeah. You know, I'll just I'll leave you with this. Again, there's both good and bad that comes from that. We have the potential for unification, you know, where we're constantly concerned about aggression from countries like Russia or China. And of course, they perceive the United States as being the aggressors economically or otherwise, militarily, whatever you. Uh, So if we all of a sudden, as Reagan had said a few times, if all of a sudden we recognize we weren't alone in the universe and that there was maybe the potential that we should be concerned about threats from off planet, would we all just become citizens of Earth? And would we put aside our differences, recognizing, you know, the other potentials that existed now? Unfortunately, I think that there are enough ideologies on Earth that uh, the range, within the range of ideologies, there are many who would say, aliens, great. 
But in the meantime, I know who my enemy is, and I don't think that humans would get beyond human nature. The other side of it, though, is the fear factor. Uh, you know, again, the, the most classic example, of course, involves the uh, War of the Worlds, uh, War of the Worlds uh, broadcast, right? And uh, Orson Welles, you know, scaring the daylights out of half of America with the Halloween broadcast there from the yes. Mercury Theater. And people have gone back to that time and time again. And noted. Now, I mean, I've even seen it referenced in some official documentation that's been released through FOIA requests over the years. A number of you know UFO histories and things like that also touch on it. If indeed the public were made aware of the apparent presence of something, and it were it were confirmed and not just you know a speculation or a hobby, right. yeah, would would fear and panic ensue? I actually think there's a good possibility of that now. The preliminary assessment released, it used very sanitized language, but the report from June basically said, yeah, there are things our military observes we can't identify. And people are all like, ah, nothing burger, bah, there's nothing here. And I'm like, well, that was their result. Maybe that's for the better for the time being, you know, because I mean, people could have been like, wait, hold on, our military doesn't know what these things are. What are we dealing with? You know, but people weren't rushing out into the streets and screaming and <laughs> leaping off cliffs like lemmings. You know, so far people are are handling it okay, but I do wonder sometimes if the proverbial spacecraft were to touch down the White House lawn. I mean, how are people going to react to that? Like day the Earth stood still. Yeah, right. All I know is I'm <laughs> going to be really disappointed if I find out the alien life forms coming to visit Earth are billionaires from another planet. That's just going to ruin it for me. <laughs> well said, my friend. <laughs> On that note, I'm going to wrap it up, guys. All right. Micah, can you tell everyone what you have coming up and where they can find you online? Absolutely. My website is micahanks.com, and you'll find all the podcasts that I produce and other things right there at the website. And, of course, we've referenced the debrief throughout the course of this conversation. You can find that website at thedebrief.org. And, of course, you'll see articles by yours truly and all the other fine uh, authors, as well as my co-founders, Tim and MJ. Uh, we work very hard. Uh, often it's a very thankless position, but I mean, what we're trying to do is continue conversations, great conversations, very much like this one. And I want to thank you, Scott and Hadley and Finley for being here. And um, this has really been a great conversation. I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Well, you have an open door with us. You can come back anytime you want, anytime you got a new book or anything that you want to talk about. Oh, well, just wait. Next time we'll do Sasquatch, okay? Okay. <laughs> I'm definitely going to be following the website, and you'll probably hear from me soon. Good. Yeah, I, I listened to your podcast last night, and I didn't get to the iOS though, because I want, I want to talk about that, too. Oh. But, um, we'll just have to talk again sometime soon. Well, indeed, I'll take you up on that. Let's hopefully maybe here in the next few months talk. Uh, I think I'll have a whole lot more to share at that point, okay? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Thank well, that's going to do it for us, guys. Um, Scott and family, let the folks know where they can find you online. Best place to find me is on Facebook. My uh, writer's page is Scott Baker's Demon Hunters. That's where I post everything about upcoming books, events, weird stuff that I find on the internet and everything. And you can find me here or you can find me on Linktree. That's L-I-N-K dot I can't remember what it's called. L I N K T R dot E E slash F Jones 6221. All right. And if you want to continue today's conversation or just say hi and check out our Facebook page, 
it is going to be facebook.com backslash groups backslash weird realities or you can find us using our link tree and that's link tree backslash weird realities with a y until next time the team here at weird realities appreciate your support and we just love you guys and stay weird okay before you go be sure to leave us a comment and let our weird team know how they're doing and don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow us to get notifications when we add new content. We are adding new content three, four, and sometimes five times a month. If you want to keep the conversation going or would like to learn more about our panel of hosts, be sure to check out our link tree. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Weird Realities. It links to our official Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and website.